This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Poetry Duels. Esoteric Columbia University. Sphinxes. And Elizabeth Siddle. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we have an anonymous patron asking a question that kicks off an all-request episode. Anonymous patron asks, how do I capture the aesthetic of extemporary poetry in my high-on-era game? Is Anonymous Patron a ringer, or is Anonymous Patron just rushing to get a high-on-era game in, knowing that Robin <laughs> is reading Tale of Genji and will be dragging us back to the high-on-era willy and or nilly for the next little bit? Nothing can say. Yes, the, the causality here might be that I've been reading the Tale of Genji by Murasaki Shikibu and saw what previously was obscure and now is low-hanging fruit, so... Right. Who can so say? That may be where the cause and effect lies. Either way, either way, an anonymous patron, who we value and love just as much as the other patrons, of course, continues, the players aren't quite up to improvising Tonka poems at the table. Well, that really seems like a player problem. But, oh, you got a good margin of success on that poetry roll, so it was a good poem. Seems unfulfilling. Uh, Robin is poetry less fulfilling than sword fighting somehow when it is abstracted to a role? Can that be? I think there is a desire for it to be that if you're interested in a thing, you want more attention paid to it. And if there is something that is creative and ergo, since playing in a tabletop game is creative, there's a thought and always kind of has been that you should kind of get points for creativity. But as your question already suggests, there is a flaw in that theory, which is that we don't make people do other things that they can't do, like swing a sword or repair an airplane while it is sputtering out over yeah. the Atlantic Ocean. And therefore, really all skill roles ought to kind of work the same way in that uh, you describe what it is that you're trying to do, and then you roll to see how well you did it. So... The obvious thing, if you're using a skill role, is to 
uh, ask the players to be creative to the extent of saying, well, what are you trying to communicate with this extemporaneous poem? And then you roll to see if you uh, succeed or not. And I'm going to let you expand on that a bit before I come to yet another premise rejection. Yet another premise rejection. You're premise rejecting what is possibly your own question. You realize this, Robin. Anyway, uh, very, uh, you know, wheels within wheels here. This is why you don't make an intrigue roll. This is why you have to play that out. Um, the other possibilities are that you could use something akin to the tag system in Dying Earth, in which you have a number of short Tonka, one hopes, or uh, bits of Tonka, if Tonkas are super long. I know nothing about the form of Tonka, because I'm not in the high on era. If I'm improvising poems, it's limericks or sonnets. Anyhow, you take a digestible chunk of a Tonka, and you present it as a tag on various themes such as, you know, victory or love or whatever else the game is likely to be about. The players get numbers of those depending on the value of their poetry score, and then they can either roll to compose poetry on some other topic, or if they've got a Tonka on a specific topic, they play that, and that becomes a plus to Tonka, and that allows them to select subject matter, it allows them to select audiences, and it also allows them to have at least a, a sense of what exactly kind of poetry are we reciting, because you've got like five or six examples sitting right there in front of you on little cards. And so in your downtime as a high on era courtier, you can be studying the Tonka and saying, oh, that's rather clever. And so maybe if all you have to extemporize is a couplet, you can go right ahead and extemporize it. And, you know, you are terrible. It's not in Japanese, though. So no one knows in the high on era how terrible you were at the table. It, it's going to sound, uh, you know, uh, fresh and part of you and the things that you theoretically want your poetry to sound since you are not just rolling a poetry roll. And that will make up for any perceived artistic defects. Robin? Right. And so this is something that we can extrapolate out, uh, not just to uh, Japanese courtiers in this one particular very rarefied period of history, but any artistic role in any game. And then so now we're broadening it to something that you too, if, even if you're not playing in the game of the anonymous patron, might run into. And again, it's the same thing. And another question you might want to ask is, what is the effect that you're trying to have by creating this work of art? Because it's not just you're creating a work of art, it's really good next thing, but you're doing it for a reason within the storyline. And so you may, for example, be creating this particular portrait in order to uh, flatter the uh, patron that you're hoping uh, to impress, or uh, you are uh, attempting to, you know, outdo all of your fellow artists and, and win a, a lucrative uh, contract or uh, a, a big contest, or, you know, your essay may be designed in order to uh, cause the potential villain that you're flattering to uh, let down his guard and allow you into his uh, inner circle since you're carefully mirroring all of his uh, weird uh, political beliefs. So another way at this is to go, well, why are you creating this poetry or this work of art? Why are you engaged in this dance piece? What is the actual purpose in the narrative? And so I think that will help you along toward just like, you know, as you swing a sword in order to, you know, get the guard out of the way or uh, defeat the uh, centipede man so that you can get his treasure, whatever it is. Uh, another question to, to ask yourself, either as the GM framing it or as the player, uh, what is the actual objective here rather than just a straight aesthetic success or not? So it could be money, romance, intrigue, you know, all the standard motivations. And I think that will also help 
bring things into focus and create a sense of suspense around that. So rather than poetry being its own role, you could argue that you make a persuade or a infiltrate or a flatter or a win the heart of role, and then you make a poetry role and the poetry role provides you a bonus to that role if it succeeds. And if it succeeds super well, well, you've created a, let's call it a permanent cantrip, right? Because now you have a really great poem that everyone who loves poetry, which will be most people in the setting, will be impressed by. And as you have more of these poems, they become basically ammunition in your spell slots. You say, oh, I've got a killer romance couplet, romance poem. I can unreal that for any uh, flatter or uh, win the heart of role. Or I've got a wonderful inspirational poem. I can use that before a battle and get us all head up to, to chop down the other guy's uh, warriors or, or whatever. And it will be, although we'll not have the creative bang of making up your own poem or even of reciting actual Tonka poetry, it will provide you a reason to be coming up with the poetry. Because if you do critically succeed in a poetry, you will have something that can be reused and re-inspired in the same way that, you know, you can imagine in the Battle of Britain, lots of people were giving the St. Crispin's Day speech before they climbed into their spitfires, and I'll bet it made everyone feel great and better at, you know, ground crewing or piloting, right? It's uh, That is literally the point of poetry, is to last past the in initial moment and inspire people in the future, and if those people happen to be your allies against the centipede men, great! Right, and now to the second premise rejection... <laughs> is that uh, I certainly, while reading Tale of Genji, which is a, a tale of mostly romantic and secondarily political intrigue among rarefied uh, courtiers uh, where the actual politics of things are not all, always exactly clear, are continually using uh, not just extemporaneous poetry, but their skill at dressing themselves, uh, calligraphy, and also musical performance as a way of establishing themselves and acquiring a stature in the world. The poetry in particular is a way that people communicate with each other when they are undergoing emotional negotiations. And they are, are almost invariably, however, first of all, they're not procedural. Uh, sometimes even there's a contest. But the thing is, is that the results of all of these things merely establish the superiority of certain characters over others. And so uh, as far as you know, any sort of role-playing application, this is like closer to Everway, if people remember that way. You just had a set number that told you how good you were at a particular thing, and that was it. And if your number was better than somebody else's, you prevailed. And if it's not, then they prevail. And that's absolutely what's happening in Tale of Genji, where the lead character Genji is favored in all sorts of different ways. He's also very deeply flawed, and uh, he's always the best at poetry and dressing himself and music. And, and there's even parts where, you know, they all, everybody goes and gets their collections of uh, illustrated stories with captions and compares them to each other and have a lengthy discussion. So there's even a chapter where they have a, a manga convention. But in all of these cases, although they are set out as if they are contests, the outcome of the contest is never in doubt. If Genji's in it, he's going to win. And if one of the other sort of mid-favored people are in it, they come in next, and uh, that's all there is to it. And the purpose of the poetry is not to score points or to win anything, but it's essentially a way that the characters are able to communicate their feelings towards each other, mostly while Genji is trying to seduce women, and they are trying to either uh, put him off 
or uh, not succumb to what they really want to do, which is fall into his arms because he's, uh, uh, although extremely favored, also kind of bad news. So it's never a question of suspense in this story as to whether a poem is going to work or not, but rather the poem reveals the stature and background and education of the character. So it's more like, you know, you're somebody's uh, stock phrase, or it's an innate quality that uh, he keeps revealing again and again, and the other characters reveal. Uh, some characters are good at poetry, some characters are not. That tells us something about them. But it's actually a character note, something that would occur in a drama system in a, a high-end era pillfolk game, rather than in a conventional thing where you are rolling to see if your poetry succeeds. If you're Genji, your tank is better than everybody else. That's all there is to it. And the person you're laying the tanka on might or might not succumb to your sometimes petulant romantic overtures, but whether you succeed or not, or whether anyone succeeds or not, is just flat out never in doubt. And I think there's a tendency when we look at works of fiction to go, how do we turn this into a role? Well, uh, one of the lessons <laughs> I've discovered over the years of designing games is not everything's a role. Sometimes things are other things. Well, just as a limerick, must end in an insulting joke, as a haiku must end at its 17th syllable. Sonnet must end after 14 lines. This segment probably should have ended before I began this extended metaphor. So let's move into a equally poetic and beautiful commercial, and then into a new and more exciting than the commercial hut. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once more to pull out the blueprints, get out the uh, protractors, check the scale, because we're once more uh, in the architecture hut in which we celebrate all things uh, building-like and also the uh, cities that are made up of the buildings. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Polly Damas asks, Columbia University is the second largest landlord in New York City. Who used it to shape the city's arcane geography? And Ken, while we're speaking of premise rejection, you have one. I do. My premise rejection is that the premise is factually incorrect. According to a 2018 analysis, Columbia owns 15 million square feet of rentable space in New York City. The two largest private property owners in New York City, obviously the government owns a big chunk of the city, own 30 million and 23 million square feet, respectively. So I assume Columbia is probably closer to top five which is still a lot of land for university, but again, 
I live in Hyde Park, so I know all about universities that are also delightfully predatory landlords. So there we are. To answer your question, Paula Damas, when you ask any question about New York State or New York City real estate, the answer is virtually always John Jacob Astor III. His grandfather, John Jacob Astor Jr., or I guess he's John Jacob Astor and they missed a second one somewhere. Uh, John Jacob Astor was a fur trader, made fat lots of money uh, on fur trade. His father, William Backhouse Astor, took the profits of that fur trade rolled it over into New York City real estate as the city was uh, booming in the very early 1800s. William Backhouse Astor went to Columbia University, but then went to Heidelberg in Germany, very excited, I guess, by the new uh, uh, German university system as it was emerging and also maybe a chance to take a pop at Napoleon. Who can say? But John Jacob Astor III definitely graduated from Columbia with a Bachelor's of Arts in 1839 and built a vast New York City real estate fortune that still basically, I don't want to say remains intact because then it would be much bigger than 30 million square feet. But he owned a lot of the very nice parts of Manhattan as they were becoming the nice parts of Manhattan, probably did not give a lot of that away. I mean, the Astors, obviously, like all uh, rich families, splintered and dynasted. But the answer to your first question or the first answer to your question is John Jacob Astor. And then... Once you start asking about the arcane geography of New York, you, of course, go right into the subways. And the subways were designed by a engineer named William Barclay Parsons, who had not one but two degrees from Columbia. He got his B.A. in 1879, and he got a engineering degree from the Columbia University School of Mines in 1882. And so William Barclay Parsons went on to found Parsons Brinkerhoff, which is one of the largest and most famous engineering firms in the world. And uh, Brinkerhoff, I believe, went to Trinity. So obviously he was just a gull, just a dupe, just a puppet, although he also invented the uh, Chicago uh, electric rail system. So take that, William Barclay Parsons. Wish you'd done it. And uh, then, of course, once you have the Astor money magics and the Astor real estate empire and a arcane set of ley lines to run power along, that's when it goes berserk. And Robin, you have found a number of possible berserks uh, in the storied history of Columbia University. So take it away. Right. Because I take it uh, Astor himself, uh, as it, as is often for the empire builder part of the family, is, uh, you know, it's later generations that start dabbling in, in the occult, as we've learned with our fictionalized uh, Bronfman's recently, for example. But there are mm -hmm. some creepity things associated with uh, Columbia uh, University. And and oddly, sort of not a lot to work with, but, you know, we're, we're professionals. We'll, we'll get things uh, going here. And so... What that means, Robin, is that someone or something has been covering them up. That's what it means. A, a veil Your heroic if, research. If you will. Yeah. Yes. And so you might ask yourself, uh, is there an old insane asylum associated with Columbia? And the answer is, why, yes, indeed. So uh, there's an institution called the Bloomingdale Insane Asylum, and it lasted from uh, 1821 to 1889. And it's built in a kind of then nice and still currently nice part of uh, the city. And that is because uh, when it started, it was aimed at wealthy male patients in need of treatment. And it was a, a pioneer of what was called uh, moral treatment, uh, meaning you don't torture people who are suffering from mental illness, but try to make them feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, sure, there's the occasional restraint chair, but you're allowed to take walks. There's all sorts of uh, humane uh, methodology associated with that. So again, even 
as 19th century institutions of this sort go, it seems, oh, this is sort of somewhat thin gruel for the sort of uh, horror and ghosty avenue. But wait a minute, as it goes along, the institution sort of drops uh, down in the world and it has to become a, a for-profit institution and it begins to serve instead of its original uh, well-heeled uh, clients, the quote, insane poor, unquote. And so we can reckon that things went pretty downhill near the end of its uh, uh, lifespan as an institution, and it closes in 1889. So you can envision all sorts of awful things there. It doesn't look awful. The one thing that is still a building from that era, which was called the Macy Villa at the time, but is now still in use is something called Buell Hall. It's a beautiful uh, sort of bucolic looking red brick structure. It looks very pretty. But if we're adding, uh, you know, an esoteric underpinning to all of this. It's pretty easy to imagine ghosts uh, going on in there. And it is, guess what, uh, Ken, linked to a labyrinthine tunnel network. Well, of course it is. the university. I mean, you, if, if a university doesn't have a labyrinthine tunnel network, it's like not having a football team. It's barely even a university, right? Right. Also, it's Philosophy Hall. Uh, there's, a, again, a, a slim read that we're going to build on, but in uh, May 22nd, 1936, in Philosophy Hall, which is now home to the archive of the university, uh, there was a moment of death ghost apparition. Uh, so both a, a language professor named John Prince and a grad student named Harriet Levy felt a familiar, reassuring sort of pat on the kidneys. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously the human resources departments in the afterlife are busy even now. Yes. Uh, and so this was the, the, the friendly touch of uh, someone well known to both of them, which uh, was the Semitic languages professor, uh, Richard Gottheil. Uh, the only thing that was weird about that is he wasn't in the room at the time. And in Ooh. fact, they soon after found out that he was dying at that very moment. And so this implies, of course, that at least some of the buildings, and if I'm going to pick one that sucks in the souls of the dead, Philosophy Hall sounds like the one. Sounds like a start. That uh, if you spend enough time there, if you're perhaps tenured, that it is at the very least... Uh, your first stop on the academic Bardo Thodol as you uh, tumble into whatever footnote bespattered uh, afterlife language professors go into. So clearly, a philosophy hall is uh, what you use in uh, Columbia University to enter the lands of, of the dead. And, you know, as if someone happens to be dying while you're in there, they might just, you know, pat you on the kidneys on the way in. More famously, it has a parapsychology department, the Paranormal Studies Library. Uh, that's in Weaver Hall. It's room uh, 205A. And that uh, has been the past home to such noted parapsychologists as uh, Ray Stantz, Peter Venkman, and of course, Egon Spangler. And I think that uh, gives us all sorts of avenues to uh, look at. I think it's they had their apogee in the 80s, and I'm sure they have other, um, I assume they're probably mostly retired and uh, have other students, but that might indeed be another way into the world of the esoteric and the occult as you're exploring the uh, psychic uh, geography and architecture of, uh, of Columbia. You should also uh, keep in mind that Columbia University is where the first non-sustained fission reaction in America happened in 1939, in January of 1939. Three uh, Columbia physicists tested out 
that crazy new theory of nuclear fission and uh, did it in a, in a cloud chamber, I believe. Uh, they fissioned some atoms, realized they probably didn't want to destroy their cloud chamber and set it uh, turned it off and then waited for the University of Chicago to do it right. A classic Columbia University tradition. But again, you have sort of a key being turned in the lock of what would become a new age of atomic monsters, uh, demons and egregores. So even though the University of Chicago's got a lot of that under its uh, ridiculous-looking Regenstein library, Columbia University still has a little trickle of that power. And again, that may have been all that uh, the Astor Parsons architecture underneath the university needed was just that little keyhole. Uh, let the University of Chicago worry about the giant uh, fire hose. They've got just enough to keep their goetic atoms uh, from splitting r- right there. Yeah, so if all you're trying to do is is keep your pathway to the academic afterlife active. That requires a lot less fission. You can just put on your cloud machine and and turn it off. There's another uh, thing about Columbia, which is that there's an urban legend among the students, which claims that Columbia notes the uh, income level of its alumni. And if they don't donate enough, hires assassins to kill them. Now, everyone knows that can't possibly be true because everyone knows that's Mm -hmm. University of Toronto. But I think for the purposes of our fiction, uh, this implies not just, you know, the, the simple need for donations, which, of course, is the lifeblood of any uh, major university, but certainly a uh, way of cleaning up anybody who uh, realizes that what uh, Columbia is really running on the uh, architectural empire that Astor created is an underground railroad uh, to a favorite afterlife. Because, you know, aside from getting your name on a lecture hall, uh, I think what rich people really want to is not go to hell, to be sure that they will <laughs> not go to hell or, or at least a version of hell that is a, a nonstop a cocktail reception with uh, indifferent wine and, uh, you know, cut up grocery store cheddar. Uh, that's, that's bad, especially for all eternity, but it's uh, better than, you know, the, the lake of monkey vomit. Exactly. Um, the boiling lake of monkey vomit. In 2007, Columbia expanded its footprint very dramatically by expanding into the Manhattanville neighborhood, which is in West Harlem, and at the time was home to a great number of inoffensive West Harlemites. And the university used its political poll to declare the area blighted and exercise eminent domain and run all those people out of their property. And that's about a 17 acre, I think, expansion. So that is probably where Columbia went from 10 million square feet to 15 million. So obviously, if your campaign needs a sort of a jump start, a moment at which the good and bad factions of archaeomancers began to shake out, that would be a good time that the bad guys are the ones that bulldozed Manhattanville uh, to build a bunch more Columbia University uh, uh, buildings. And your good guys are the old school of, of Astor Parsons magicians. You barely even, you know, drink from the little trickle of uh, nuclear fission magic. You're, you're mostly there guarding the door to the Bardo in uh, Philosophy Hall and doing the occasional tinkering to make sure that the bodega, you know, that you like uh, near the near the subway entrance is, is stocked with the Diet Dr. Pepper. But now, now uh, the bad guys are moving again to once more attempt to launch Columbia into some sort of misguided, arrogant claw at uh, global dominion or power over the um, clip out or whatever. And you, of course, have to stop them. And this, I think it makes a great inciting incident that you could play area residents, 
maybe even who have your own local geomancies and are being bulldozed, or you can play, as I suggested, Columbia scholars who object to that kind of behavior and uh, would rather use their powers for good, or at least for a, a more low-grade uh, eternal cocktail party kind of evil, right? Right. And so uh, if you uh, see a, an innocent-looking neighborhood sitting there adjacent to your uh, lands and want eminent domain, obviously the fact that you've got a bunch of officials and politicians on the hook by promising them the least worst hell, they're <laughs> going to hop to. They're going to do your bidding. That's going to make it easy for them. Also, the $11 billion endowment may have some role to play. Who can say? May have something Carrot to do with Carrot and it. stick. And so clearly the, uh, the assassin squad is the necessity for that is that if you are promised the cocktail reception hell, uh, that's probably kind of irrevocable. Like once you set that up, you can't unset it. You can't uh, repossess that. But you can make sure that you kill people with the special knife you use to make sure that they go to the, the hell that they're actually fully destined right. for. Yep. And I think that that, uh, so that gives you your, your bad guys that gives you your conspiracy. And uh, there's all sorts of people who are on the hook and your the uh, player characters might even be hired, not really knowing who's uh, hiring them by someone who uh, really wants to get out of that arrangement uh, without uh, getting, you know, the old uh, dread kidney knife stab that uh, will send them uh, to the hell that they're, uh, deeds qualify them for. Yep. And I think uh, once uh, we've, uh, we're descending into hell, it's time for us to descend out through this beautiful angelic commercial and see what waits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Pay us money so we don't compose spontaneous poetry as part of this podcast. Just like discerning Patreon backers, J.P. Morrell, Sean Stevenson, Drew Clary, Anders Moline, and Chris McCarthy. Mysterious cacophony of growls, slithers, and I don't even know what is that a buzz? Is that a chitinous whir? Who can say? We must be entering a realm of monsters, or perhaps at least a hut of monsters in the monster hut. Beloved Patreon backer Bob Greider asks Sphinxes? Which you gotta love as a form of a question. Meet Sphinx, be asked riddle off Google, answer correctly or fight, can only be interesting so many times. Um, well, in fairness, that's why the Greeks only did it the one time. They realized that was a funny once bit. But 
Uh, it's true. Sphinxes do show up in the monster manual. They are there. What can we do with the Sphinx? Robin, you have uh, dug deep beneath this enigmatical sigil. Uh, what do you got for us on Sphinxes? Well, it, it turns out that ideally for monster manual purposes, there's not, not just one kind of Sphinx. There's whole bunches of them. And as you suggest, the, the riddle thing is just a shtick of one particular Sphinx. So they can all be up to doing certain things. And so, and, and your Sphinx is not limited to one particular form. So, uh, of course, human-headed Sphinxes are the ones we think about, but they can also have the heads of cats or falcons or uh, even sheep. And they most often, in fact, have the body of a lion. I think if it's the head of a cat and the body of a lion, that's not going quite far enough in, in creating a chimerical that's creature. That's really more of an enormous cat. But, you know, uh, yeah. who am I to critique? And they generally have the wings of a hawk or a, a falcon. And so that, of course, can give you a wide range of things. You can have a face to uh, ask riddles or interact with. You can have a beak that can peck you. You can have a, a cat that can bite you, a sheep that can ram you. And of course, they can fly. That's always very inconvenient to fight uh, flying creatures. And uh, they have raking claws. So there's all sorts of reasons why you don't want to uh, make a sphinx mad at you. A sphinx with a ram's head is a cryo sphinx. And the uh, Sphinx with the head of a hawk is a Hyraco Sphinx. And so we can imagine all sorts of different attacks and abilities uh, associated with them. And unlike some of the creatures that we've uh, recently dragged for not being interesting enough, there's a range of morality and myth for the, the Sphinx. So the, the Greek Sphinx is malign and uh, true to form, female. And the Egyptian Sphinx is male and benevolent. And sometimes the Greeks would refer to the Egyptian style as an androsphinx uh, for clarity and also because they were compiling a monster manual and wanted yes. enough different possible monsters. We don't actually know what the Egyptians called a sphinx. Probably wasn't sphinx, but we've uh, uh, lost that along with a lot of the other uh, verbal parts yep. of uh, the uh, Egyptians. Allegedly, the, uh, the local Egyptians used to call it Abu Hol, meaning the father of horror which is a, a great name. Seems less benevolent. Yeah, but it might have been that he was benevolent to a bunch of pagans and he's mad at monotheists. I mean, if I were Kefren, who they think might be the face on the Sphinx of Giza, the Sphinx we're all thinking of, I probably would be a little steamed that a bunch of people showed up and said, oh, actually, you're wrong. No such thing. There's only one God and he's not got a goat head or anything. He's just a God. Can't even draw him. That's how God he is. Yeah, I, I would be mad at that if I were the Egyptian Sphinx, frankly, I think. Uh, so Sphinxes are described by Herodotus, and uh, Pliny says that Ethiopia is really the place to go to to meet a Sphinx. Uh, and uh, he describes them as, as somewhat fetching. Uh, that's another sort of theme uh, running through this. Um, the specific mythic Sphinx of Greek mythology is the daughter of Orthrus, who is, of course, the two-headed dog killed by Heracles. If you're Two-headed dog in Greek mythology, you're always going to be second rate to uh, to the three-headed dog, Cerberus, but the, but Orthrus is, is the two-headed dog, and probably her mom is the chimera. And, you know, that checks out. Yeah. That makes sense. You got the lion parts and the wing parts. That's chimera-ish. So yeah. uh, there's a, a city of, of the Sphinx, if you want to have people go somewhere where the monsters who uh, help the city are arrayed there. You can go to uh, Chios, the... Uh, ancient Greek uh, city-state. That's one of the members of the Ionian League. And uh, they're early makers of coins. And uh, who is on the coin? But the Sphinx. And so uh, that implies, uh, again, a sort of a more benevolent 
kind of civic sphinx that's uh, that's there for you uh, when you need it, or is trouble if you've uh, arrayed yourself against Kios, which uh, which maybe you have. The famous riddling sphinx, of course, uh, was also a guardian. It guarded the entrance to Thebes, and that, of course, is when Oedipus comes up, and every other moron before Oedipus has failed to answer the classic riddle, and Oedipus gets it. And then, depending on the story, either Oedipus just goes ahead and kills the, the Sphinx, which, of course, is what D&D Oedipus mm-hmm. would do. Yeah. Or uh, a more uh, dramatic emo version of the Sphinx dashes herself fatally on the rocks in, in frustration because the only thing giving her pleasure all these years is that no one can guess her stupid riddle. And as Bob suggests, that is not something that I would recommend replicating even once. That's good in the myth, not great in an encounter. I think that is rarely ever fun. Either you, uh, you know, to recall the first segment, make your riddle solving roll and solve it, or you make the players solve it, which is also uh, annoying. And then, and then you have something either happen or not happen. And so uh, why not have, uh, I think the guardian quality of the sphinxes is important, but maybe each sphinx needs to be talked out of attacking you or fooled or tricked or uh, negotiated with in some different way. And it's just that particular one sphinx who uh, had a thing, the one riddle she knew, and it, it went for, you know, uh, decades, if not centuries, before somebody blew it on her. I think one interesting possibility is, I mean, if you want to play with the riddle without doing the, the dumb riddle thing, there's a Roman bestiarist named Statius, who's a poet, and he has a sphinx in his poems, and he describes her as having pallid cheeks, eyes tainted with corruption, wings clotted with gore and talons on livid, which is to say spotted hands. That sounds like an undead sphinx to me. That sounds like a vampo sphinx or possibly a sphinxilich. And so, yeah, in life, the sphinxilich was cursed to kill themselves. If you guess the riddle, the undead sphinx, best case scenario, they're like the Riddler. They just ask riddles to mess with you. Worst case scenario, they hate riddles. If you bring up a riddle, then they kill you, right? There's like, I had to live with that. Now I'm undead. Now I'm going to literally kill everyone who gives me either answer or question of a riddle that the, the Statian Sphinx, the, the Sphinxilich is out there getting it done and giving you problems. I I feel like the answer to my riddle is always death. It's always death is bite you. And, And I think you could, you know, I don't know how fun you find the Riddler. Many people find the Riddler equally dull uh, as as the original sphinx but i think that there's at least something there in a sphinx that uses her riddles to harass and destroy the heroes as opposed to just as a a button you press before they fall off a cliff Um, i should also say in the guardian sphinx tradition there is a a good sphinx in india known as the purushamriga but they just guard doorways like they do in kiosk so maybe kiosk got a load of, of of indian sphinxes and that's how you uh, get rid of the sphinx is you have to go to India and get the answer to the riddle of how do I get rid of this horrible Vampo Sphinx? And right. the Indian Sphinxes will have to guide you through a perhaps more interesting thing than a roll on your philosophy score. There are benign Sphinx-like beings throughout Southeast Asia, and generally their different names translate as man-beast. <laughs> Uh, So uh, that's powerful description right there. And uh, they are often also temple guardians, but because they're guarding temples, they're benign. You want temples to be protected. And also some of them are sin eaters, that they will eat the sins of the people heading uh, into the temple in order to purify them so that they can then be in the presence of the holy. Uh, This 
uh, implies a number of things. And possibly if you were the Tomb Raiders, those sphinxes who may be the only things left in a, a tomb that has fallen to ruin may not appreciate your presence because they're there to guide it. They may also uh, have important information and if they're active uh, in, you know, sin-eating circles, they you might be able to persuade them to say, so that guy who was just in here this afternoon, the one with the the sun sunglasses and the camera, you want to tell me what sins that you ate from that person? And, you know, if you make a good case, they might uh, convince you. So they might be sort of unconventional uh, witnesses and a sort of a, a weird uh, contemporary uh, setting. Or there's always a possibility, of course, that they eat the sins of the wrong person, the sins that are too gross and awful uh, for even a hardworking man-beast to devour, that they uh, then go on the rampage because the, the sins start to uh, take control of them. So you may be charged by the temple monks with uh, uh, finding, and not killing, but healing, you know, subduing, and then healing the guardian, the man-beast, in a way that uh, then brings them back to their uh, proper role in the guardian. And then the question, well, where did you put those sins? Are they in a bag? Are they in a pot? And what do you do with that pot full of uh, incredibly uh, terrible sins that the, uh, or do you return them uh, to the person who, uh, who disgorged them? Because uh, again, you don't want them to end up in a uh, cocktail reception uh, in the afterlife either. In the Renaissance, uh, sphinxes uh, undergo a Renaissance they become uh, hip again. Because they dug up a bunch of Roman sphinxes and they said, oh, sphinxes. Exactly. That's cool. Because they weren't trying to come up with a story. They just wanted to decorate stuff. Right. And that's where you uh, get a uh, sort of a, a Baroque era uh, sphinx who's often a somewhat uh, Zoftig matronly, but also uh, sort of alluring female figure. And uh, again, some people clearly want to get down with the with the sphinxes, and that's all through uh, Renaissance. Yeah. Anime predates anime, Robin. I think we all know this. Exactly, yes. Well, you know, it used to take <laughs> hours and hours to, to sculpt a sphinx, and now you can just mm-hmm. draw one on a cell. At about this point is when the masons begin to adopt the sphinx as a symbol of mystery, and, and why they would do that, of course, with the whole riddle angle, uh, not a, a matter of mystery. So it's possible that when you're entering a Masonic lodge, uh, whether it's in Germany in 1750 or Indiana in 1910, uh, you might just find a sphinx uh, guarding it. And uh, again, they all think riddles are stupid. They hate the fact that they're associated with riddles. They wish that one riddling sphinx was not the most famous sphinx. But they may have some other test to determine whether you can get into the Masonic Lodge. And that test just might simply be whether they can bite your head off before you can uh, hit them with a sword. Right. Or you have to know the Mason word, and then that gives you a password. Or you can, as with the other Sphinxes, uh, talk to them about people who've gone in. And if you convince them that you are sufficiently illuminated and of high enough rank, maybe they'll spill the beans on the people that walked in or out, because you obviously deserve to know you're a higher ranking Mason. And, you know, you might be telling the truth. You might be lying. There might be an esoteric Masonic rite, as many very excitable Masons enthusiastically pretend there are. So why not add a one that knows actual magic and can talk to the Sphinxes? Uh, once you get into sort of modern decorator Sphinxes, you're, you're moving into a sort of a, a world of urban animism, which is probably a whole different segment. But the notion of decorative bits of a myth that sort of bespangle all your better looking older cities. Those provide you faces of the various gods to talk to of the, of the urban anima, the urban genius loci and sphinxes are, are going to be a part of that. You, you can certainly 
um, you know, talk to the guardian lions in front of the New York public library. Those are basically just sphinxes with cat heads, as you said earlier, right? Right. Uh, you can't tell that a sphinx is a, a sphinx if it's got a, a lion head and a lion body and what, it's hiding its falcon wings. What better riddle than that? Exactly. <laughs> and, and one last possibility, when we just to go back for a sec to the whole Masonic Lodge idea, uh, maybe they're running that whole masonry thing. <laughs> you know, being a sphinx, it's hard to go to the store or to uh, spend your wealth. Uh, but if there's an entire secret society that is uh, recruiting the very uh, cream of uh, aristocracy or uh, later the uh, entrepreneurs of middle America, well, uh, you can get a long way by promising them uh, rights and mysteries and the uh, final inner circle. You realize, Oh, our bosses, you know, the, the Sphinx of Indianapolis. And uh, he's got some more instructions for you. So it might uh, well be an entire conspiracy, perhaps somewhat benign, perhaps better than other conspiracies, but still uh, a, a conspiracy uh, run by sphinxes where the, the Freemasons are just their uh, human personal assistants going through the world uh, doing uh, what it is that they want them to do. And uh, once you have a sphinx sphericy, I think that we are back around in an apropos Greek uh, symmetrical fashion to solving the riddle in order to defeat the sphinx. The riddle in this case is what's the conspiracy about and how do we get out from under it? And maybe you can talk to the lion headed lion sphinxes and maybe you have to figure it out yourself uh, in a longer campaign and while you're figuring it out right we will use you as a distraction and avoid the eyes of the sphinx by sneaking into this commercial Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's once more time to wander into the uh, confines of that most ill-defined of huts, the hut that sort of sits between the occult and uh, the surreal, can have a historical crankery, but we're not really sure. Oh, wait a minute. That, looking at the window, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and over in the corner, there's our friends, the gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're uh, swigging some kombucha. But, oh, they've also got some uh, some absinthe, and they've got top hats and monocles this time around because the elliptony hut is going to uh, go back to the Victorian era and to the pre-Raphaelite movement because 
a beloved Patreon backer, Dave Monroe, says, Your brief mention of Elizabeth Siddle in relationship to the Highgate vampire, combined with the fact that a dear friend of mine is a literature professor who's done a lot of work on Ms. Siddle, demands that I request a section on the elliptonic possibilities of this remarkable woman, meaning that anything that we get wrong, uh, Dave will be able to go and get thoroughly well actually from his friend. Exactly. Well done, Dave. You've set up a conversation that will no doubt redound to everyone's benefit. But until that happy day, Elizabeth Siddle, born 1829 in Hatton Garden, which was a nice area of London. It's north of Holborn. It's where the jewelry trade in London basically was. So obviously uh, high rents and uh, plenty of of good housing, but her dad made knives. He made cutlery. So they had to move out of Hatton Garden. They moved to Southwark, which is, it was then crummy. I don't know if it's crummy now, but it was certainly crummy in 1831. It was so crummy, in fact, that her father's landlord, James Greenacre, butchered his fiancee, Hannah Brown, in 1836 and left her torso floating in the river. That's the kind of crummy it was. So Elizabeth Siddle, uh, to her credit, did not grow up to be monstrously emo and gothy. She had to marry that. Uh, she grew up loving Tennyson. She liked knights and uh, fantasy. She uh, drew drawings. She wrote poetry. Uh, she worked in a hat shop, which is where she met the father of the artist Walter Deverell, and she showed him her drawings. He worked for the, uh, uh, I believe, the City of London as a uh, draftsman and said, oh, these are quite good. My son is an artist. Maybe you should meet him. And Walter Deverell met her and said, you are a uh, pre-Raphaelite model. And I should know because I've just joined the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. She had a long neck and a strong chin and great masses of flowing red hair. And that was enough to get Walter Deverell to take her around to meet all the, all the boys. Among them, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who was the nephew of John Polidori, the old physician to Lord Byron, and the man who put the vampire into English literature, if you can define Polidori's story of the vampire as literature, which many people do not. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood have never met. This is like way back in the 80s, Robin, when there would be the one girl who was into D&D. This was very much Elizabeth Siddle's uh, impact <laughs> on the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. She's like, oh, I can quote Tennyson. And they just fell all over themselves to paint her and uh, make goo-goo eyes at her. She sat for it because they were rich and she was working in a hat shop. So she was painted by John Millais as Ophelia. She had the famous if, if anyone knows one pre-Raphaelite picture, they know the drowning Ophelia lying in the bank of, of all the, the, the wildflowers growing everywhere. That was her. She was lying in a bathtub to get that uh, look. She was lying in a bathtub in the winter of 1852 and uh, being painted by a pre-Raphaelite artist. So guess what? Of course, she catches pneumonia, Robin. And uh, her dad, no slouch, says, I make cutlery and you're a soft-handed artist. What are you going to do about it? my daughter getting pneumonia? And so Millais ponied up some money to pay for her doctoring. But that may have been the moment at which she first tasted the laudanum. And this is a, it's a foreshadowing, Robin. It foreshadows. Anyway, uh, in 1852, she takes up with Dante Gabriel Rossetti as a boyfriend, girlfriend, and as his art student. Uh, he moves to Chelsea uh, in November. There are various stories that say that she moved in with him. 
I don't know because I am not a dear friend of Dave Monroe's, who is a literature professor, so I'm not going to step on that landmine. But certainly they go around together and he changes the spelling of her name from Siddle with two L's to Siddle with one L and forbids her to model for other painters. And if you are saying he's kind of a jerk, well, welcome to Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Yeah, this is also foreshadowing. Life of a jerk. Brilliant art critic John Ruskin, a early booster of the Pre-Raphaelites, sees her drawings, basically comes down to the Rossetti house, Rossetti Siddle establishment, and just pays out 150 pounds and says, I want every scrap of art you've ever made, and I will give you this every year if you give me every drawing you make. And one imagines that sets the cat among the kittens in the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. She gets a solo show in 1855. Dante Gabriel Rossetti promises to marry her and then backs out like a big coward. In 1856, he is slowly introducing her one at a time to his sisters and relatives. And they say, oh, who's this? Oh, it's my model and student. Oh, great. Does she live with you? I can't say. And also her dad makes knives. I'm so sad. So she actually gets an exhibition with the rest of the Pre-Raphaelites in 1857. It is at this point she feels confident enough in her art that she... Uh, that's the last year she takes a subsidy from John Ruskin, which is quite the move again. I mean, Elizabeth Siddle may make poor life choices, but I don't feel like she's, you know, comes out of the story badly. Right. And, but her health is failing. Her so health is failing. Uh, that may be the laudanum. It may be may the well hanging out with artists. It may just be that, you know, if you grew up in Southwark in 1831, you caught a lot of germs that are just going to live with you forever. Uh, she marries uh, Rossetti in 1860 in Hastings, and she is so frail that she has to be carried to the altar by uh, Rossetti. People at the time said it was tuberculosis. Who can say what it was, but tuberculosis fits all the symptoms. She has a stillborn daughter in 1861, which affects her, you know, understandably very, very badly. Uh, she turns back to the laudanum, and in 8 February of 1862, she dies of a laudanum overdose after having had dinner with Dante Gabriel Rossetti and his buddy and her buddy, Algernon Swinburne, beloved creep and poet. Algernon Swinburne. Rossetti goes off to teach school. She lays down with a, with a laudanum bottle. Uh, he comes back. He summons four doctors to try and revive her. It can't be done. There is a rumor that it is a suicide, but uh, if there is, Rossetti burns the suicide note so that she can be buried in a Christian cemetery and so that there won't be even more of a scandal because Rossetti is always thinking of himself. She's buried in Highgate Cemetery, as we mentioned previously, with her father-in-law, in the grave of her father-in-law, Gabrielle Rossetti, uh, who, by the way, was the founder of the secret society, the Carbonari. And in a, uh, a emo act, Dante Gabriel Rossetti throws into the coffin a book of poems that he has written for her. Well, he's not going to regret that. No, that's not setting anything up because, as he knows, uh, her spirit has entered into a chaffinch because why not? He gets a wombat. He gets a new girlfriend. <laughs> and he's this writing poetry. Seems gratuitous in this. I'm not sure how, how it connects. You know? Frankly, that's what a lot of people say. But Tim Powers, actually, to sort of put a big circle on this, writes this story up in the novel Hide Me Among the Graves, which is the sequel to the great vampire novel that he wrote, Stress of Her Regard. Uh, this one is same thing, only with the Rossettis instead of the Byrons. And Powers left the wombat out. And I remember asking him, where's the wombat? And Powers said, have you ever tried to write a story of spectral horror with the word wombat in it? And I have to say, he's not wrong. But 
I don't want yeah. to commit wombat erasure, Robin. So at the very real risk of having given this segment its title, I'm putting the wombat back in. Uh, anyways, Rossetti's got a new girlfriend. He's writing poetry for her. All of his buddies, Swinburne, is becoming a, a he's blowing up as a giant poet. Rossetti, of course, is mean and petty and jealous. And he says, oh, if I could publish my poetry, everyone would know I'm as good as Swinburne. Hashtag he's not. But fortunately, Rossetti has a odious friend named Charles Augustus Howell, who basically... I'm going to guess he had a number of odious friends, and this one was available. Or or the most odious. Yes, but this this one is literally the most odious. He was Ruskin's secretary. He embezzled from Ruskin. He embezzled from Swinburne. He sold Swinburne's copyright out from under him. Swinburne hated him. And believe me, to get Swinburne to feel any sort of emotion about a dude is 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 strong. But Howell was a, a weasel. And so when Rossetti is, you know, lying there uh, on his, in his uh, lily bedecked forehead, complaining about his lost poetry, Charles Augustus Howell says, don't worry, I'll dig her up. Rossetti says, don't you have to ask my family who owned the grave? And Howell says, this is not my first exhumation, I'm sure. He digs her up, uh, cracks open the coffin, re- retrieves the poems, comes back and says, her body is incorrupt and her hair has grown to fill the coffin, which might just have been him twisting the knife on Dante Gabriel, but it might have been a sign that she's a vampire. Who can say? You'll be glad to know that uh, Rossetti did publish his poems, that he did not actually become as good a poet, even as his sister, Christina Rossetti, to say nothing of Algernon Swinburne. So that didn't work out very well for him. Howell, you'll be even happier to know, was found in Chelsea in April 1890 with his throat slit and a gold coin in his mouth. And became the model of uh, the blackmailer Charles Augustus Milverton in uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. So, if you uh, wanted a Sherlock Holmes connection, there you have it. If you want a vampire connection, we already gave it. I mean, you got ample vampire connections going back to Polidori. And in terms of uh, artistic magic and the rest of it, that's what the Pre-Raphaelites are for, because they are drawing on the legitimate medieval arts that existed before Raphael came in with his fancy talk and his uh, renaissancing, right? Right. And so if you want to see a film version of this, it might be hard to track down, but Ken Russell did a really early uh, film, uh, early in his era, called Dante's Inferno in 1967. This was originally shot and debuted uh, on the BBC and then uh, is often shown on, and it was shot on 35 and is shot uh, sometimes shown in uh, Ken Russell retrospectives. It has Judith Paris, as uh, Elizabeth and Rossetti is played by Oliver Reed, uh, in case you needed to know that he's bad news. <laughs> yeah, right. You needed a sign that he was a sweaty, uh, gross guy. Let's cast Oliver Reed. Yes. And so I think of all the various elliptonic things that I would be inclined to make her not a straight up vampire, but perhaps yeah. a vampire adjacent, right? She's got, got some secrets of living beyond the grave, uh, perhaps from Polidori. She's got plenty of grudge, not only on uh, Rossetti, but on Howell. And I think she's some sort of uh, revenant uh, powered uh, by the need for uh, revenge. And uh, this uh, brings us, I guess, to in a scenario, sort of the problem. Do a cool Victorian Ringu. Yes. Except uh, she's got red hair instead of black hair. Yeah. And so uh, it may be that reading the poems uh, summons her uh, and, uh, you know, her uh, original anger has long been dealt with. You know, she... Uh, got Howell and stuck the gold coin in his mouth. And perhaps 
uh, other victims uh, show up with uh, gold coins in their mouths, and this is your clue that uh, Siddle is eventually involved. And so when you solve the mystery, perhaps you have to go to her grave. Uh, she will materialize, as of course she will. And then uh, because she's a, a sympathetic revenant who's maybe just misunderstanding things, you then have to explain to her that everybody that she has a grudge against is dead, and she's just killing current uh, literati who have done nothing to harm her, but merely remind her, perhaps her descendants, of uh, Howell and Rossetti and so forth, and that uh, you want to, you know, again, subdue her, just as you were subduing the uh, virtuous man-beast earlier in the episode, and then persuade her to uh, that she can just uh, kick back everybody she needs to get vengeance against has, has been uh, uh, properly dealt with, and uh, you can perhaps perform a proper ceremony and uh, uh, send her to the rest that uh, she uh, so richly deserves. Yeah, and that she, amongst the things that she spreads amongst people she's attempting to destroy, obviously would be artistic frenzy of one kind or another. Swinburne famously had a, a, a number of, of liaisons with uh, women who beat him, at his request and for, I guess, at his, you know, at, at, at his expense, even. So that may have been his attempt to sublimate whatever magics Onrio Elizabeth Siddle was working. Um, her ex, uh, Dante Gabriel, of course, died of alcoholic and chloral hydrate induced insanity and mania, uh, got bright disease and, um, uh, just like Lovecraft got bright's disease and died basically raving in 1882. So uh, you could imagine a, a a moment where she basically haunts him to death in 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 that if you wanted to, and uh, lots of the other folks in that space have all manner of other connections uh, to murders. You could, if you wanted her to hop artistic uh, schools, she could start uh, battening on Walter Sickert, who is uh, someone that has been identified as a possible Jack the Ripper candidate by Patricia Cornwell. He was not because he was in France during the time of many of the killings, but. Elizabeth Siddle was also in France during her honeymoon, and so therefore she might be able to work magics from France that uh, cause uh, Walter Sickert's uh, tulpa to go out and kill people. So if you want her to uh, go down into the modern era, you just simply, you know, attach her to Sickert, and then from Sickert she could hop either into, I think Winston Churchill is connected to Walter Sickert. He, he had him as an art teacher. He had one of his uh, pupils as an art teacher. And then, you know, once she's, uh, you know, caught up in British spy life via Churchill, she can tie into uh, good old uh, Project Edom and be part of your Dracula dossier game. And you got another Victorian lady vampire who is uh, roaming around and may know facts about Dracula, because as I mentioned very early in this, she was a, she was a, a good student of, of lore and legendary and was very into that sort of thing. So perhaps slaking her on Rio anger is a key to getting information about Dracula. And her connection to verse, of course, suggests that if you interweave some of her poems with uh, the text of the uh, uh, the King in Yellow, the play of the King in Yellow, uh, that indeed she can show up in anywhere from Paris uh, shortly, you know, just a generation after her death, or can uh, go all the way into uh, This Is Normal Now, and uh, as is our wont. When we've uh, fit a, an interesting historical figure into most of our games, uh, we will now flee the area before we get haunted to death. But we'll be back, uh, protected from ghosts, sphinxes, and uh, even uh, Taka poetry uh, for another episode a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. 
Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from annoying yet lethal riddles alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Evan Hughes. Jonathan Donald. James Kiley. John Buckley. And Keelan O'Hay. Wear this show or drunk it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Unnerve your co-workers with our latest design, Quiet judging you. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.